Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 137, October 30th to November 5th, 1863. Last week, we had the first sanitary fair held in Chicago to raise money for the war effort. More of these fairs are going to be held throughout the North as we move forward. We also had action at Pine Bluff, Arkansas, John Marmaduke continuing to not be able to drive home a W for the Confederacy while the Arkansas River is still saved for the Union. We talked about action in Louisiana and the opening of the Cracker Line. As the supplies roll into Chattanooga, the Union contingents from three different armies will begin to make preparations to drive Bragg away, who Grant believes even at this early stage is going to fly before he can strike him. This week, we will have action in Tennessee, as well as check back in on what's going on in Virginia. To close out, I want to get into the spirit of the season and maybe talk about some Civil War ghost stories. Before we get into that, though, let's talk a little bit about the Patreon. We had a memoir review here recently, and that was uh, James Harvey Kidd and his recollections of serving in the Michigan Cavalry Brigade under Custer. So a lot of events that we have already discussed, a lot of stuff moving forward as well uh, that we will discuss. Um, So that was posted here for the month of October. We're actually hard to believe we're already turning the corner to November here, so we will be posting a picture slideshow. This one's going to be of Perryville, and that's going to be, I know, a little bit removed from when we actually did it in the narrative here, uh, if you're listening here in order, but uh, it is a very picturesque battlefield, so wanted to include some pictures, and then we'll talk about what we're seeing and the events that happened there. So be a nice little refresher for Perryville, uh, and we remember it in the 1862 Heartland campaign. So if either of those things sound like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. Of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So we will start at Collierville, Tennessee this week. Now, Collierville is a little outside of Memphis, and in 1863 was a stop on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. In October, it had been the target of James Chalmers and his cavalry coming up from Mississippi. Chalmers, we have mentioned before in campaigns in the Western theaters, including Shiloh and the Heartland Campaign of 1862. And again, shameless plug for our picture slideshow, Perryville is the climax of that campaign. He will soon be under the command of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is on his way to take over following his vow to dual brag if he ever saw him again. In the meantime, Chalmers would prove just as aggressive as Nathan Bedford Forrest would. His October attack on Collierville had only been thwarted by Sherman himself showing up with his headquarters and escort via train. These men would add the right amount of strength to the defenders, but it was a close call, the smaller garrison thinking of surrendering. Sherman had ordered the burning of several buildings to deny the enemy. Confederate horsemen had harassed the train and were able to make away with Sherman's horse as a result. While Kump's corps was rolling through to make its way to Chattanooga to relieve that city, Chalmers would strike again on November 3rd. 
there was a realistic opportunity to tear up some track and really do some damage. Standing in the way of Chalmers would be Edward Hatch, however. Hatch, if you remember, was subordinate to Grierson during his famous raid. Well, he still commands not only the 2nd Iowa, but also the 7th and 6th Illinois, effectively elevated to brigade command. Hatch was given advance warning of Chalmers and his planned operation, so he was able to consolidate his forces. In addition, if you remember from back in April, the 2nd Iowa is still armed with Colt repeating carbines, which are going to make the Confederates think they are facing a larger force. As a result, Chalmers would not press the attack. With the railroad remaining open, casualties were around 60 on the side of the Federals and a little less than 100 on the side of the Confederates. While the operations of Chalmers will come up short and there will be no Union follow-up, there will be continued action in Mississippi in 1864, so stay tuned for that. It is interesting to think that the war is not quite over in that state, especially given Vicksburg having fallen, that kind of sort of being what some would see as the end of resistance in that area. Forrest will ignite some life into the Confederate resistance, but for the most part now that Vicksburg has fallen and Jackson is in ruins, the Magnolia State will become more or less quiet. While regular cavalry operations, it also shows that more guerrilla hit-and-run tactics would still make it difficult for the occupying Union forces. Also an interesting thought is what happens if for whatever reason, Chalmers is able to capture Sherman or eliminate him, right? Maybe he becomes a casualty during this engagement. He comes very close to actually catching Sherman. Um, he catches his horse and makes the horse a prisoner, right? But could have done that with Sherman. And how that's going to affect things moving forward uh, would be an interesting question. Now, we're going to get into Chattanooga here, and that's probably one campaign that Sherman does not perform particularly well in, right? He gets criticized for his performance. So maybe it might have been a positive, right, for the Union. But uh, nonetheless, it would be an interesting thought to think what happens if Sherman is captured. Let's pop back into Virginia to check on things and how they're progressing there. When we last left off, we had just wrapped up the Bristow Station campaign. In the end, nothing really came of it for both sides. George Meade and his army would lack a clear direction, kind of floundering in their efforts to get at a weakened Lee. Lee, on the other hand, despite having been reduced in troop strength with Longstreet's departure, was ready to try an offensive and almost traps part of the retreating Union forces. At the close of the campaign, we had some cavalry action as well. Meade would cautiously move his army back to the south. His caution would be exasperated by Confederate infantry making a foray that runs into Buford's cavalry. The old snapping turtle would not want to be surprised and potentially trapped, as he'd almost been in the case with Lee's flank march. But with the Army of Northern Virginia safely behind the Rappahannock, and Meade's army now sailing back into the location they had occupied in late July, the question remained what exactly was there to do? For Meade, there were many options, but once again, no help from Washington. Lincoln, Halleck, and Stanton had all shot down the idea to withdraw to Washington and winter closer to the capital. Here was the reason for thinking about this. The ONA had been severely damaged by Lee, 
and this rail line now was the only supply route for the army. It also ran a little bit away from Richmond, which for Meade and the other Union generals had always been the objective. Should rebel cavalry cut the line, it would prove to be a big issue for Meade, whose army would already be reduced, having to garrison troops to prevent just such an operation. There was a perceived threat where Meade sent an entire cavalry division to counter what turned out to be only a rumor. Mosby and his partisans were doing their part as well, making a direct impact on the theater. It was deemed likely he would decide to make a strike at the line, becoming even more impactful than just picking off men, animals, and wagons. Less than the length of the supply line seemed to be a good call, and for that matter, Meade was not convinced operating in that part of Virginia would get to his ultimate goal. Relocating bases to Fredericksburg with a supply base at Acquire Landing would be appealing. But Lincoln and the others in Washington realized that Richmond should not be the goal. Lee and the destruction of his forces would be the ultimate prize. Wherever Lee was, Meade had to be there as well. And it did not matter if it was at Fredericksburg or elsewhere, because, well, it was going to be hard either way. Lee would be happy to remain where he was in the vicinity of Culpeper Courthouse. Hoping Longstreet could be back in the spring, the location will allow for him to operate offensively through the Shenandoah or Loudoun Valley. Practically, it would also move his army away from northern Virginia, where wintering in the depleted state of that country would make it impossible. If Meade moved forward sooner than expected, however, he was in a bit of a spot. His right flank was going to be relatively vulnerable, and if you remember, Burnside had stolen a march in an effort to gain it in 1862. Meade could try this again, but this time he would be more prepared than Burnside was. The Gray Fox was never really one for being on the defensive or reacting to what the Union journals decided to do, but in November of 1863, it seemed he had little other choice. The ball would be in Meade's court. Lee had decided that in order to effectively defend his river line, he needed to have a fortified beachhead on the enemy side of the river, this being Rappahannock Station. From that point, he would be alerted to any potential enemy movements. Indeed, the terrain was such that without this beachhead, the enemy could move undetected, which made the Rappahannock line difficult, especially when trying to protect the right flank. The northern side of the river has higher ground, so... These hills are going to mask the movement of the Union forces, so that's really what Lee is concerned with. The left flank and moving into Madison County had been contemplated by Union cavalry, but this had not been decided to be a good course of action, as there was little in terms of strategic value out west. Furthermore, it would draw Meade away from his line of supply. Meade would be greatly disappointed by not being able to shift his base, the supply issue being a high priority he wished to solve. Without Plan A, Plan B would have to be unfurled. You see, the campaigning season slipping away was problematic for many people. Washington wanted a clear and decisive action, hopefully a victory, over Lee. Meade wanted a chance to get back at all the critics who were blowing up the newspapers with his perceived incompetence. While Meade was not winning any major victories, neither was he losing, though, which got him some love with the army. An attack 
and a forced action would have to be rolled out. To do this, the Union troops would have to move on Rappahannock Station. Cedric and his 6th Corps, along with Sykes and his 5th, would carry out this part of the plan. French, commanding the 3rd Corps, along with Warren's 2nd, would move across Kelly's Ford. The 1st Corps divisions had been dispatched to watch the ONA and could provide support if necessary. Alf Pleasanton would also play a part with his cavalry moving with the infantry, making it quite an operation which involved pretty much the entire army. Bad weather had delayed the operation, but in early November, the stage was set to begin. November 7th would see not the settling of winter quarters, but rather the jump off of this planned offensive. French, commanding the wing of the army, would arrive relatively undetected at Kelly's Ford. Now you should be aware of Kelly's Ford, since it's been our story a couple times already. And you should realize that Kelly's Ford being defended from the south side of the river is not something that could be done effectively. North Carolina troops belonging to Ramsar's brigade were stationed in this vicinity, as well as the small town of Kellysville, which before the war would have a gristmill and clothing factory. In November, it would be 1,500 rebels standing in the face of some 29,000 Union troops. On the 7th, 3rd Corps men under the overall direction of David Burney, commanding the Corps in the place of French, would make contact with Confederate skirmishers across the river. The weight of the Union troops would drive them back, artillery gaining the advantageous high ground. While Union artillery shelled the earthworks, the Confederates would scramble to respond, eventually replying with artillery of their own. The advantage that the Northerners had in terms of the number of guns and the high ground would really show, forcing the rebels to retire. Infantry support in the 30th North Carolina tried to get to the 2nd, the only regiment occupying the river trenches, but fire from these batteries and those of the Union sharpshooters, the 1st and 2nd U.S. arriving to act as skirmishers, drove them back. Regis de Trobriand's brigade would be there to be called upon to take the ford. The honor to lead the assault fell to Lieutenant Colonel Casper Trepp, the commanding officer of the 1st United States sharpshooters. Frontal assaults having gone out of style since Burnside at Fredericksburg, Trepp would order companies from his command to ford the Rappahannock in an attempt to flank the rebels out of their defenses. This would be done with the cost of a handful of casualties by rebel marksmen. Bernie would order Trapp to lead the assault at the ford, followed up by Detrobriand's brigade, sweeping the earthworks before them. This attack would be joined in in the flanking companies, forcing many rebels to surrender. In fact, Rhodes would list 295 missing in the action compared to only a handful of actual battlefield casualties on both sides. Despite building several pontoons, French would be met with a well-planned response by Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. Rhodes would be joined by other divisions, which formed a continued line in the face of the enemy. The Federals would then stand by and wait and see the developments that were happening at Rappahannock Station. Sedgwick would have his command approach the Confederate beachhead on the 7th. Defending the earthworks around the station, whose buildings were burnt by the rebels, by this point in the war, were the Louisiana regiments of Harry Hayes' brigade. Hayes being absent, Colonel Davidson Penn was the commanding officer, a VMI graduate and capable commander. Sedgwick was just as cautious as he had been early on the year during the Battle of Chancellorsville. While Confederates consolidated their strength, 
and sent word to Jubal Early of the enemy approach, the Federals organized their lines. The V Corps and the VI Corps would both have tasks for the coming assault. The V would try to take the high ground before the works while the VI secured the station. The O and A would divide the assault. Leading the attack from the VI Corps would be Howe's division, with Horatio Wright stepping up to take command of the Corps, so long as Cedric was in wing control. Howe's division would sweep onto the high ground, brushing past the rebel skirmishers, sending regiments to secure Beverly Ford. From their high ground, they would pause. The Confederate works seemed formidable, and artillery from both sides of the river began lobbing shells. The advanced Federals would set up in a sunken road, trading shots at their foe. The Fifth Corps would be led by Bartlett's division, which included brigades from Hayes, Schweitzer, and Chamberlain. They would have a rocky advance, and halt much in the same way that their Sixth Corps counterparts had, an artillery duel opening up. In the meantime, three regiments from Robert Hoke's brigade arrived to reinforce the defenders. Lee thought the situation was relatively stable, though. Cedric had paused, unwisely allowing for these additions to the line. David Russell, taking over in division command from Wright, would wish to put together an assault. His own brigade would charge near the railroad and subsequently the rebel pontoon bridge. Led by the 6th Maine and the 5th Wisconsin, the attack would rely on stealth. Orders to use the bayonet and not cap their weapons were sent along the line. You remember when we talked about how the loading and firing process of a rifled musket in the Civil War times, right? You would put a percussion cap on your weapon in order to fire it, and uh, so they were told not to put their percussion caps on, so obviously they couldn't uh, fire their weapons. The 5th would disobey, leading the 6th Maine to attack alone at first, but with help from the 49th and 119th Pennsylvania, their brigade had a tenuous foothold on the works. On the far side of the ONA, the 5th Corps skirmishers from Chamberlain's brigade would scatter the enemy. Emory Upton would attack, supporting the lead brigade in the right moment. Leading his men, he cried that those who died would go to heaven, while those who lived would get into the works. Men from Hoke and Hayes would surrender in droves, their line broken and no support having arrived. Lee had made a big miscalculation with the closest supporting units not very close at all. Harry Hayes would write about the attack in his report. About 5 o'clock, a battery was opened on our right and another opposite our center. The firing from the enemy's guns on the right, left, and center converging on the point occupied by us was rapid and vigorous until sometime after dusk. It was then, under the cover of darkness, that a simultaneous advance was made of the entire force of the enemy. In the center, the skirmishers were driven back, and their first line was so broken and shattered by our fire that the few who arrived at the works surrendered, themselves prisoners, but the second and third lines continued to advance at a double-quick, arms at a trail, and a column formed, as well as the obscurity of the evening permitted me to descry. By companies, moving down the railroad was hurled upon our right, which after a severe struggle was forced back, leaving the battery in the hands of the enemy. I immediately ordered a charge of the 9th Louisiana Regiment for the purpose of retaking our guns, but our center having been broken and the two forces opposed to our right and center having joined rendered the execution of my purpose impracticable. Forming a new line after this junction, facing up the river, the enemy advanced, moving behind our works toward our left, 
wall line which he had formed in a ravine above our extreme left, its, the enemy's right resting, on the river, moved down the stream, thus enclosing Hoke's brigade and the 7th and 5th Louisiana regiments in a manner that rendered escape impossible. My men continued at their post in the works, fighting well to the last, and it was only when the command was cut in two, and the enemy in complete possession of the entire hill, that any thought was entertained of falling back. Indeed, there was no effort made by anyone in my command to recross the river, until nothing else remained but to surrender. Many then escaped by swimming or fording the river, and some few on the pontoon bridge. The force under my command was small, being between 800 and 900. That of Hoke's brigade, consisting of three regiments, was also small, as, owing to the suddenness with which it left camp to proceed to the river, many of its members were absent. The force of the enemy, I am confident, could not have been less than 20,000 to 25,000. Confederates suffered 1,674 casualties, the majority being surrenders, including Davidson Penn. Union losses were 419, with 136 of those belonging to the 6th Maine. This was a major setback for the Confederates. It would definitely mean that the least plan for the Rappahannock Line would have to be abandoned. Next week, we will pick up the story with the immediate aftermath. To close out, let's do something a little different. I have acquired a book that actually gives some ghost stories or otherwise supernatural reports from newspapers. And it's actually called Civil War Ghosts. And it's from newspapers at the time. And it's uh, put together by Michelle Hamilton. And I want to read some of the excerpts from the book um, because I think it is pretty interesting, right? How these individuals thought of the supernatural. Some of these are definitely jokes. You can kind of tell, right? And some of them are more serious, right? And in the 1800s, there was definitely a movement toward mysticism. So I think these articles will help us get into the mindset of folks from back then. So I'm only going to read a couple. I, you know, I want you, if you find this stuff interesting, I want you to go find the book. It's on Kindle and it is pretty interesting to see. So let's read a couple of these here. Now, the first one is going to actually be from a Nashville hospital. And we'll see if they have a little report here. So it starts off with a ghost. This is from the Daily Morning News in Savannah, Georgia. The citizens of Lynchburg have been thrown into a fever of excitement by the appearance of a ghost in their midst. It has been appropriately selected a deserted hospital as the scene of its nocturnal visitations. So there you go. Even back in the Civil War time, they're talking about abandoned hospitals. I'm sure there's plenty of horror movies that <laughs> that's where they are located at. The Republican gives the following account of the Phantom and experiments upon the structure of the same by civilians and military gentlemen. On another occasion, a large cane in the hand of one of the party present, who made a lick with it at the ghost, passed through the apparition without disturbing it in the least, and struck the wall with a heavy rebound. These facts seem to be well attested, and we are told that nightly a crowd assembles to catch a glimpse of the vagaries of this dead man who revisits the pale lights of the stars. The scene of his perambulations is on the shed of a house back of the express office belonging to the late Warwick Hospital, now not used. Its appearance was as if it rose from behind the chimney, which springs from the roof of the house, and it disappears at the same point. 
It cannot be the ghost of Hamlet's father, for many of our readers have seen that ghost disappear time and time again beneath the floor of the stage of the theater. Mayhap it may be the ghost of Banquo, but there are many who believe it to be the ghost of some poor soldier, many a one having died at the hospital. And then there's another actual account here of the ghost from the Daily Morning News once again, Savannah, Georgia. We mentioned on Friday morning that the fact that the ghost of some disembodied spirit visited the vicinity of the late Warwick House Hospital and accounted for the apparition upon the supposition that the shape thus seen was the shadow of some person retiring from the night which was reflected upon the place and gave rise to the notion of its being a spirit. Since the appearance of our article, the locality has been carefully examined with a view to discover the correctness of our way of accounting for the phantom, and we are informed by responsible gentlemen that it cannot be correct. This being the case, then, we must confess ourselves nonplussed, and join in with the general opinion that the form thus seen is nothing more nor less than the veritable ghost of some departed one, which revisits the earth for some cause as yet undetermined. As we stated previously, a sword had been passed through the shape, and it had been stricken with a heavy stick, without the least effect, which facts coming well attested to assures us of its... And they actually don't have the word there, it's probably something you can't read, but obviously some kind of cinnamon for truthfulness perhaps uh would go in there pretty nicely now that gives us a pretty good idea they're like not so much focused on the fact that that there is a ghost but they're kind of like trying to prove you know doing some ghost hunting right um so obviously they had a pretty heavy fascination with it and uh, the article does go on and they kind of talk about it a little bit more but uh, we will move on to a different story we can talk about something from the state of georgia here as well. Now this one is from the Southern Banner in Athens, Georgia, and it's actually titled A Ghost Story. We heard one of General McCown's officers tell us a hard story on yesterday. It seems that when McCown was in West Tennessee, this officer was sent into a neighborhood where he was well known. He was riding in a buggy and overtook an old acquaintance and friend named Robert Bond. Bond was on foot. The officer, after the usual salutations and inquiry for the news, asked Bond to take the buggy and drive it on to the next house and await his coming that he was tired of riding and wished to walk the intervening half mile. When the officer came to the house, the buggy was standing there and the horse tied to the gate. The officer asked the ladies of the house what had become of Mr. Bond. They amazed answered that Bond had been killed in a skirmish near Corinth and that his body had been brought home and buried on the day before the officer arrived. He asked the ladies who had brought the buggy to the gate. They answered that there was no driver and that the horse came quietly to the enclosure and that their number had went out and tied him. It is needless to state that the officer who made this statement discredits his own sense, but he is confident that he could not have mistaken Bond for another man, that his personal peculiarities were well known to him. But how could he have disappeared, and how a dead man could have driven a horse and buggy and then vanished, or why his disembodied spirit should have appeared to him when he did not even know what Bond was dead, are questions often asked by the officer referred to. He's evidently sorely puzzled by the occurrence, as were his auditors by its narration. So there you go, somebody sees somebody who turns out to be dead, right? Uh, so that's more of a ghost story than anything. And maybe we're kind of reading a little bit too much into it. Maybe it is just a story, right, too. That could also be entertainment-wise. Sometimes they have these stories and, you know, you're reading the paper to be entertained, right? It's probably not something we think about here in the modern day. We have other ways of being entertained, you know, TVs and phones, but you didn't have back then, so you had to read the paper, and sometimes maybe there was a story in there, so you got to read that. 
So here we have another one from the New York Herald, and this is titled Being a Ghost. James Lansing of the 62nd Pennsylvania Regiment is a firm believer in ghosts. The belief is modern in its origin and originated thus. Last evening, he and several members of his company were discussing the subject of execution for desertion, and reference very naturally was made to the recent execution for desertion, and reference very naturally was made to the recent execution in this corps. The body of the executed man is buried but a short distance from the company's camp. The conversation diverged into a discussion about ghosts and wound up being one of the party betting a month's pay that Lansing did not dare go near the grave of the executed man and step over it three times. Lansing started, and the proof of his going there was to be three notches cut in the board at the head of the grave. The one making the bet equipped himself with a piece of canvas and a long stick, and hurrying to the grave, which he reached first, and lay in wait for the arrival of his betting companion. Lansing advanced close to the grave. The stick, the canvas, and the soldier extemporized a ghost of seemingly colossal height. A sepulchral grave came in as a fitting compliment. God have mercy on my soul, save me, save me, ejaculated Rand Lansing. And you really believe you saw a ghost, said one of the party, after Lansing had sufficiently recovered from his fright to tell of his recent venture. I don't believe it. I know it, replied the victim of the joke. He was twenty foot high, and such groans. Is it to be wondered that the aforesaid Lansing is a firm believer in ghosts? So there you go. That was a more humorous one. Soldiers playing a trick on each other, and... That gives us also a pretty good idea of the kinds of stories that you're seeing. So we had one that was kind of serious, one that was more fact-finding, and then we have a humorous run. So there's all kinds of different articles uh, in this book, and I do recommend that you go out and take a look at it if that's something that would interest you. And like I said, getting into the spirit of the season a little bit here, it's something we haven't done before. We might actually have some other stories. I had two more that I want to read, but I might do that, save those for a rainy day perhaps, and that will give us some more insight into this kind of stuff and what's happening uh, in the 1860s. So let's go ahead and close it out there. This week we had action in Tennessee and checked back in on what's going on in Virginia, the Battle of Rappahannock Station. Next week we're going to wrap up in this theater and then shift focus and actually take a look at West Virginia. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the Patreon as well as Venmo information and the support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>